0: right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts 1. While you're turning there, let me just give you a preview of upcoming events. For the next three weeks, Pastor Scott's going to be opening the word to us. He's going to be, I think, he'll have his own image, I'm sure. He's going to talk about how we color in the lines of church membership. So that's what he'll be doing over the next three weeks. Um, for myself, next Sunday I will be at, campsite, uh, at the White Oak Campground. I'm speaking at Campsite Ministries uh, next week with Elmer and Chris. This is one of the highlights of my summer to go and serve with those men at the White Oak Campground. So uh, that's where I'll be next week. Um, I'll be in the office all week, uh, but then next Sunday I'll be at Campsite. And then for the following two weeks I'll be on vacation. Um, I'll be gone, and uh, Pastor Scott, of course, will then be filling in for um, um, on Sunday mornings. Something else that's happening this week, uh, i just mentioned to you, uh, Claire Schmucker is getting married on Saturday, so we're excited for her and uh, Matthew, her fiancé, So, and we wish them well. Uh, and tonight, don't forget, please do come to the Praise and Worship Night tonight. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We're going to have a time of uh, hymn singing. We're going to uh, sing some more contemporary songs led by a worship team. We're just going to uh, do a variety of things. You're going to learn two new songs uh, this evening. Um, so do please come, I think you'll really enjoy the service, and then of course, if that's not enough, there'll be ice cream afterwards, so um, I know some of you maybe not in the habit of coming out on uh, Sunday evenings, well, come anyway, and if you're hanging out with your family, bring them along, That'd be, they'll be more than welcome to come, so uh, that'll start tonight at uh, 6 o'clock, now I want to read from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, follow along as I read. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now Luke explains what happened to him. With the payment he had received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, "Acheldama," that is, field of blood. Peter continues, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership." Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go to where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Of all things that we could have talked about in history class, we were on that day debating slavery. No one was naturally in favor of slavery, but our teacher, because this is American history and we were trying to understand the Civil War, divided us into groups. Half of us had to pretend we were northern abolitionists, half of us had to pretend we were southern slave owners, and we had to debate the issue of slavery using some of the arguments that they used in the middle of the 1800s to debate this issue. We talked about the economy. We talked about racial issues. We talked about justice. And inevitably, someone, because uh, this was an issue, raised the Bible. Uh, you know this. Southern uh, slave owners often appeal to Scripture. The Bible doesn't condemn slavery. And in certain places, the Bible even um, uh, gives rules for how to uh, establish a boundary or, or guard around slavery. Well, you know from our discussion of the book of Leviticus that using the Bible to defend American slavery is not wise, nor is it logical. There's such a significant difference between slavery as it's in the Bible and American chattel slavery that it doesn't really make sense to apply the Bible. It's about as logical as... that um, uh, old question, I think it has roots in Monty Python. Do you know why fire engines are red? Do you know that line? Fire engines are red because a fire engine has four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight equals 12. Twelve inches are in a ruler. Queen Elizabeth was a ruler. Queen Elizabeth was also a ship. Ships sail on seas. Seas have fish. Fish have fins. Fins fought the Russians. Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian. Therefore, fire engines are red. You can see the logic just does not compute. And that's about as uh, uh, the, the, the biblical support for American slavery was very, very thin. Well, uh, the, uh, the discussion continued, and Sandy Schneibel, one of my classmates, said in response to this, why would you want to base your life on a book that is 2,000 years old? a question that really cut through the discussion, and it's a question that you hear forms of asked all the time. Why would you build your life on a book that's 2,000 years old? And underneath that question is an assumption about the Bible that the Bible is not trustworthy. The Bible is not sufficient. You can find all kinds of sources that will argue with you that because of the discoveries of modern science or our growing understanding of human psychology or uh, uh, growing uh, uh, historical uh, discoveries, uh, that the Bible is out of date and irrelevant and insufficient for the lives we lead today. Why would you want to live your life based on a book that's 2,000 years old? Well, one of the answers to that question arises from this text. There's a lot of answers to that question that we could give, but one of them comes from this text. This is what God's people have always done. God's people, faithfully following him, have always sought to live their lives based on what the Bible says, this 2,000-year-old book. It's it's one of our traits, it's one of our characteristics. It's in our DNA. We just read the first scene in the Bible that shows the early uh the life of the early followers of Jesus. This first scene from their walk. Um this material covers a 10-day period of time. Uh, Christ rose from the dead, let's say on day one here, and then 40 days later he ascended into heaven. On the 50th day after the resurrection, the Spirit came, the day of Pentecost, and this text covers those 10 days between the ascension and between the uh, day of Pentecost. Christ has gone, the Holy Spirit has not yet come. What do these men and women do during that 10-day period of time? And they do hear what God's people who have, are faithfully following him are meant to be doing. They're praying together and they're following the instructions of the Bible to fulfill the mission that Christ gave. Those three things, actually. Prayer, the Bible, and the mission. Now, now that mission is in verse 8, isn't it? Uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The prayer, the Bible, the mission. These are the three stools that support the whole narrative structure of the book of Acts. We're going to see these come up over and over again. The church at prayer, consulting the Bible, uh, pursuing the mission. Uh, we talked about prayer last week, and I hope that maybe you ha- take an opportunity to pursue prayer together with someone else, a follower of Christ in in some way, today what we want to do is I want to talk to you about um, these other things in the text, the mission and the Bible. And actually there's a priority here to that. The Bible uh, guides, guides and fuels and instructs and guards and inspires and directs the mission. We are those people, those strange people who believe that the Bible is sufficient for us. Uh, We believe it's enough. We believe it's enough to tell us how to live and how to function. It binds our conscience in certain places, and it frees our conscience in certain places. It tells us what God is like, and it tells us how to follow Him. Uh, This morning, uh, Ryan and Haley signed our doctrinal statement. If you're a member of our church, you have signed this too. Listen to what our doctrinal statement says about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's truth for all people for all times. It is complete in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. It is without error in whatever it teaches in the original writings. It is God-breathed in every word, divinely preserved and therefore trustworthy. It is God's written propositional revelation. It is the supreme standard in all matters to which it speaks. There are a lot of ways in which our confidence in the Bible manifests itself. Many ways. Let me just mention two of them. We believe Scripture is sufficient. We believe Scripture is sufficient to restrain and direct your sexuality. Uh, Last Sunday's newspaper, perhaps you saw it in the perspective section, had two editorials by rival rival members of the clergy arguing about the issue of uh, so-called same-sex marriage. Uh, Time Magazine recently had a cover story about transgenderism. You can't look anywhere in the world without hearing or reading or seeing some story about human sexuality. Uh, It it seems like this is an obsession in our culture, which is uh, strange. We are not merely sexual beings. In fact, your sexuality is only going to last as long as you're alive here on earth, but your soul is eternal. Can you imagine what would happen if all these editorials and all these articles and all these headlines were about soul matters instead of sexual matters, how different things would be? Well, on the cover of uh, Time magazine was a person named Laverne Cox. And Laverne is in the Netflix show, Orange is the New Black. And uh, L- uh, Laverne was born a boy, but uh, chooses to live as a woman. And Cox said this. She was talking... Uh, um, Laverne was talking about third grade. Uh, her, um, this is what she said. Uh, I just thought, Cox says, I just thought that I was a girl and that there was no difference between girls and boys. I think in my imagination, I thought I would hit, when I hit puberty, I would start turning into a girl. So we believe that the Bible is sufficient to, um, even contrary to our deeply held feelings and our desires and our dispositions and convictions, we believe the Bible is sufficient to restrain and direct your sexuality. We believe that the Bible speaks to us all about our sexuality and how we are all in need of uh, repair. The Bible tells us about how God, our Creator, makes our bodies and He makes them male and female and He calls us to embrace manhood and womanhood as creatures made in God's image. Now, second, we believe that Scripture is sufficient to instruct us in fulfilling our mission It's sufficient to instruct us in fulfilling our mission. There's a new trend among some congregations, many large churches in the South. I haven't heard about anybody around here doing it, but it will happen soon. Uh, The first news story I could find was uh, from 2002. The Christian Post reported on a large church in Houston that on Easter Sunday was trying to attract people to the congregation by giving away $2 million worth of prizes. Uh, including 16 cars, 15 flat-screen TVs, furniture sets, gift cards. um, uh, This this practice is actually growing and spreading. Come to church, and you might go home with a new car. Um, The pastor said, this is going to be more like a game show than a church service. Now, he also was quoted in this article. He said, we want to give things away to people. We want people to come. We're going to give things away. And our hope is that as they come and we give them things, we want to tell them about God's ultimate gift to us, Jesus Christ. Now, I appreciate their, their motive here in this. And let's be honest, they have more opportunities by doing this to talk to people about Jesus Christ than we do. But, but there are reasons that we don't operate this way. What are they? This is a loaded passage of Scripture, this, Bible, uh, this passage that I just read. And uh, here's how I want to unpack it. I want you to see in this passage two realities that are central to followers of Jesus Christ. If this passage is about three things, prayer, the Bible, and the mission, here's the two things that I want to show you this morning. We talked about prayer. I want you to see how this passage tells us that the apostles are a necessary foundation to the church, and second, I want you to, show, to see how the Bible is a sufficient guide for the church's mission. So the apostles as necessary foundation to the church's mission, and the Bible as sufficient guide to the church's mission. Uh, these two things go, go together. Did you, you know the story? It's the Bible. Peter reads the Bible, and on the basis of the Bible, he thinks that they need to replace Judas for the sake of the mission. So the Bible is guiding them to replace Judas for the mission. We're going to talk about the Bible as sufficient guide in a minute, but for just a few minutes I want to talk to you about the apostles and this scene where they replace Judas. Uh, When Jesus began his ministry, he called 12 men to himself, and the Bible originally called them what? Disciples. The word disciple means student or learner. Uh, there are other disciples in the Bible, but there were 12 men that Jesus picked in particular that became his closest group, and they're called in the Bible as a group, the 12. Uh, their names are listed for us. I read them right in verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13. Twelve is is the complete number, and they with Jesus are the main characters in, in the Gospels. These are the early stakeholders. They share in Jesus' ministry. They're the first ones on the scene. They're the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry from the beginning. I have a book on my shelf at home. It's written by Joseph Ellis. It's called Founding Brothers. And it's about some of our own founding fathers and the interaction that they had uh, around the formation of our country. You know these men's names. You can list them uh, if you were asked. And, you know, July 4th is coming. We'll think about them a little bit. Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Henry, Hancock, and the list could go on. These are the, the early stakeholders, the early proponents of uh, the American experiment. These men listed here in this text are the early stakeholders, the founding fathers, as it were, of the church. And based on his understanding of Psalm 109, which he quotes in verse 20, Peter thinks that the number has to be complete. Judas has defected. Judas is dead. We need to replace Judas. Now, this is not the only place where Peter would have gotten this idea uh, to replace Judas. In fact, Jesus had said to them, and I think it's written down there on your sheet, from Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about the age to come. He said, "...Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Judas has defected, Judas has died, and now one of those thrones is going to be empty. What are we going to do about that? One of the stakeholders is gone. One of the eyewitnesses is missing. Jesus himself appointed 12 witnesses, now the 12th place it has to be fulfilled, so they're going to replace him. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you this process they go through to replace him. The reason I want to talk about it is because it's not completely dissimilar from how we uh, find elders or choose elders in our congregation. This four-step process or these four this 4 four-point grid that they go through to replace Judas. First of all, there is the Bible. The Bible. It's the Bible that is prompting Peter to uh, suggest to the, to the men and women there that they replace Judas. Um, and in fact, it's the Bible that tells us that in our congregation, the church should appoint elders. Uh, Titus and First Timothy both give us that example. The second, after the Bible, they use logic. Logic, there are certain qualifications that an apostle must meet and they're going to use logic to narrow down to these men. There are qualifications in Titus and 1 Timothy 3 for elders and our nomination committee is to logically apply these qualifications to these men. Now, they mention here, uh, in, in the process of appointing these apostles, they mention, Peter mentions, the qualifications for an apostle. What must be true about you in order for you to be an apostle? Three things. First, you must be a man, verse 21 says. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men, and that word there translated in Greek is the word men, who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. When the Bible talks about elders in the church, it speaks about elders in male terms, and we're following this pattern that's here in Acts chapter 1. Now, second qualification is that this new apostle has to be a disciple of Jesus. He has to be a disciple of Jesus from the beginning, he says. He had to be living, he had to be with us from the time beginning from John's baptism. And third, this new apostle, he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. He had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Now, here again is another opportunity for me to remind you of the nature of our faith. We are not eyewitnesses ourselves of the Lord Jesus, but we are reading and proclaiming and trusting in eyewitness accounts. The first apostles... These men go from being disciples, that is, students, to apostles, that is, sent ones. Their mission has changed, so now they're apostles. These first apostles were witnesses. They saw these things with their own eyes. This is the nature of the New Testament. This is an eyewitness book. Now, the prevailing view, actually, of the New Testament is not that these are eyewitness accounts. Most people, if you were to go out and ask them, because this is what they have learned or this is what they have read somewhere, they believe that the New Testament stories about Jesus may have started as some little stories about a good man named Jesus who was a teacher and a leader and was executed by the Romans, but they believe that over time Jesus' stories were expanded and built upon and embellished and magnified so that over time Jesus became the wonderful miracle worker, son of God. It's what many people believe about the New Testament. The problem is that these texts don't read like embellishments. They read like, new te- uh, like eyewitness testimony. A few weeks ago, I um, spoke about the work of Richard Baucom in this regard. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about this. Uh, of course, Lewis was a world-class literary critic. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, eyewitness accounts, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly entered." anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative in other words the gospels and and the claims that they make cannot be so easily dismissed as myths if you reject them as myths you reveal your unwillingness to interact with them as they actually as, as they actually are which if you will pardon me is an ignorant way to read the bible these apostles, since they began this worldwide mission about speaking about Jesus, there have been scientists and philosophers and thinkers and leaders who have provided numerous reasons not to trust them and not to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not able to answer all of those objections to Christianity. The answers are there, but I, I, I'm i not sufficient to answer them all. But listen, it, don't reject Christianity because you're misreading the Bible. Don't reject Christianity because you won't take the Bible as it actually is. In fact, you should recognize the demands that the Bible makes on you. The Bible demands your confident trust. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute. So um, they move from the Bible then to logic and logically through these qualifications they narrow them down, the apostles, the the apostolic candidates, that's a good word, the apostolic candidates, they narrow them down to these two men, Joseph and Matthias. We know almost nothing about these men. (laughs) Strange, is that strange to you? They were there, these two men saw Jesus get baptized by John. They were there, they were following along, they heard the Sermon on the Mount, they saw the miracles, they were uh, present, perhaps even in the upper room during the Last Supper, they saw the resurrection, uh, and what's odd to me is that they're not mentioned in the Gospels at all. Why is that? Why don't we know anything about them? Well, actually, it reminds me of the nature of the Gospels. See, the Gospels, those four books that tell Jesus' life story, are not focused on giving us all of the details of Jesus' life. In fact, the Gospel writers want to talk to you about how you live in light of who Jesus is. That's why all those details, like these two men, aren't, aren't there. And there's many more details that aren't there either. Well, um, we don't know anything about them. We don't know what happened to them. We know that Matthias was chosen, so he's going to be sitting on those 12, one of those 12 thrones, so you can ask Matthias <laughs> more questions later. Um, we don't know what happened to them beyond this, though. There's actually something we do know about them. We do know that they are brave men. Huh. Who would put your name forth to be a leader in an organization where uh, uh, your founder had just been executed 40 days before? Uh, Friday, of course, was the 70th anniversary of D-Day. It takes courage to step out of that boat when you look across the beach and there's all these bodies, all these men who have gone before you, who have, are, have died trying to take this beach, and you're next. And here's Matthias, and here's Joseph. Yep, I'm going. I- I'm willing to be one of the apostles. Well, they, they narrow it down, the Bible logic, and then the third thing that they do after that is they pray, that's in verse 24, then they prayed, so that's a good step. And finally here, there is the lot, they cast lots. Uh, this is not what we would expect to be the fourth step, is it? Um, where did they get this idea? Well, it's in the Bible. You you'd almost begin to think that they're really guided by the Bible, right? The, the lots are in the bible under the old covenant this is an acceptable way to make decisions casting lots is a way to recognize uh, that god is in control of all things proverbs sixteen thirty three. it's written there it says the lot is cast into the lot, lot lap but it's every decision it's easy for me to say it's every decision is from the lord they made this decision, nurses. They narrowed it down using the qualifications of the Bible, prayer, logic, and all things being equal. They have these two men, and what are they going to do? They cast lots. They let Jesus decide. Is that what they're doing? He'd pick the original twelve. Now he's—they're he, going to by casting lots allow him to choose um, the last one. Now, this is not a passage about decision making. This passage is not. Um, but you might be wondering, I wonder if this is okay. Was this okay that they cast lots to make this decision? It doesn't happen again in the New Testament. In fact, when Paul and Timothy and Titus give instructions about choosing elders, he doesn't, use, he doesn't say, oh, I'll just cast lots. He doesn't do that. Is this a legitimate way to make this decision? Now, it would be reasonable, I think, to argue that this is a special case. This is a special case. They're looking specifically for Jesus to make a decision. This is a special case. You could make that argument, um, but I'm not sure that having followed all of the biblical material there is, that casting lots as a final step is completely illegitimate. If you apply all of the biblical criterion and you narrow it down, you, you think carefully biblically, you apply logic, you pray about it, you analyze the situation. If you have two decisions that are of equal validity, I doubt this is ever going to happen in your life. Aren't you going to have a preference of some kind? Well, if, if you get down to you have two equal decisions, you just can't decide. Maybe this is something you could consider. I, uh, I, I thought the nomination committee might have done this a couple of years ago. A couple years ago, the nomination committee had uh, to fill two slots to present two people before the congregation for affirmation as elders, and they had three men, and they could not decide. To the best of their... But they prayed, they thought, they talked, uh, they were anxious for Christ to, to provide guidance for them, and they just couldn't decide. And I said, well, you could cast lots... Um, Actually, what we decided to do is we received these three men as God's provision for our church at the time and expanded our elder board. And in hindsight, that was a very good decision. Now, remember, though, they're replacing an apostle here. This is a word-guided step for the sake of the mission. Because the apostles are necessary foundation for the church's mission. Ephesians 2.20 tells us about this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The apostles are foundational and they have to be replaced. Uh, Let me say this again. The apostles were foundational. It was important to replace the defector. What you should know as the rest of the book of Acts unfolds here is that they replace Judas in chapter 1, but they do not replace any of the other apostles as the story unfolds. This is why we're not Roman Catholic. We do not believe that the Pope is the replacement of the apostles. Nor are we, uh, us, along with some of our other some of our charismatic brothers and sisters, nor do we anticipate that there are living apostles today and that God gifts people with apostolic authority in the church. We don't believe that. Um, And I think we can demonstrate it from the Bible. First of all, there's nobody living today who meets these qualifications. (laughs) Nobody living today has seen the resurrected Christ. The second thing that we notice in the book of Acts is that in Acts chapter 12, James is executed by Herod and they don't replace him in Acts 12. They replace Judas the defector, but they do not replace James the martyr. Why? Because James had been faithful as a witness to the end. It was Judas' defection that caused them to replace him. And as the rest of the apostles die, they do not replace James. Apostles. They are the foundation. They're original. The original eyewitness is foundational to the mission. Now, let's move on here this morning, if we can, to the sufficiency of the Bible for the mission. Verse 16, Peter says, The scripture has to be fulfilled. The scripture had to be fulfilled. They were fulfilled. We have to follow them. Now what I want to do is I want to show you in the few minutes we have left why the Bible is a reliable guide for us, why it's trustworthy, why it's sufficient to push us forward in what we're supposed to be doing. Three reasons. Number one, the scriptures come from God. The scriptures come from God. Look at what Peter says about the Bible in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. This is a verse that affirms the divine origin of the Bible. The Holy Spirit spoke. Actually, it affirms the human authorship of the Bible too. The Holy Spirit and David together spoke. And these are the Holy Spirit's words and these are David's words. Which means that these words are not limited by, uh, in all the ways that human books are limited. They're not limited by time. They're not limited by frailty. They're not limited by blind spots or ignorance. Divine authorship points to divine perspective, which the, uh, uh, results in divine authority. See, one of the arguments that takes place in our culture, you hear this from people, and it was recently made again in a, in a, in a book about, um, I think it was called The Gay Christian, perhaps. is by Matthew Vines. One of the arguments that comes up a lot is, is people say, well, see the Apostle Paul, he was limited and he didn't know about that it was possible to have a homosexual orientation. He didn't know that that was the way some people just naturally are. Or they argue that, that Paul, because of his cultural restrictions, w- didn't know or was a, uh, unaware of the fact that there could be mutually fulfilling equal homosexual partnerships so that's why the apostle paul is so negative about homosexuality because there's just so many things he did not know the problem with that view of course is that they are not just paul's words these are the holy spirit's words and he is not limited When you see a denomination or a church change its position on homosexuality, you can actually tell that something went wrong in that denomination a long time ago. These are just symptoms of a deeper problem. Usually the deeper problem is rejection in the church of the authority of the Bible. They rejected the Bible a long time ago, and now they're changing their position on homosexuality because they have no foundation to stand on. Scripture is sufficient because it comes from God. Second, it's sufficient because the Scriptures tell the truth. The Scriptures tell the truth. Now, this is an odd point to make from this passage. I'm going to tell you why it's an odd point to make from this passage in a moment. But for now, Peter, notice he's appealing to the prophetic nature of the Old Testament. The Bible speaks about events that are to come in the future. And when it does, it speaks accurately. Peter is looking back at a passage written a thousand years before the Lord Jesus was born, and it describes how the Lord Jesus would be betrayed by one of his closest friends. We can trust the Bible to tell us the truth. There are hundreds of ways in which the Bible speaks about the future, and it is always right. The Bible tells the truth. Now... This passage I just read is one of those passages that critics sometimes point to when they say that the Bible is not trustworthy. They ignore the prophecy part here of this passage, and they talk about the details of how Judas died. It's a gruesome story, isn't it? He fell headlong. His body exploded, and his intestines spilled out. Ooh. Well, look with me at the parallel text in Matthew 27. Flip over with me just for a minute to a couple books to the left to Matthew 27. And I want to show you how Matthew describes these same events, not nearly as gruesome. Matthew 27, verses 1, verse 1, and I'm going to read for a couple paragraphs here. Matthew 27, verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, verse 3, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, there's a number of similarities between Matthew 27 and Acts 1. The field, the name, the fact that it was purchased with Judas's money. I, I'm not concerned by the fact that Acts 1 says that Judas bought it, and Matthew 27 says the chief priest bought it. It was still Judas's money. Yesterday, uh, Friday, uh, maybe Thursday. Sometime this week, I had a conversation with, with somebody who has a friend, and he said uh, his friend's going to have to take some time off of work. He said, because he's having a baby. Now, I did not say to my friend, what? That's a miracle. I did not say that. Because I know what he meant. He meant that actually his wife is having a baby. It's their baby, the two of them together. She's going to give birth. It, it, was, it was an expression. X 1, it's, it's an expression. The real thing that... that wonders we wonder about the earth. how did he die did he die by falling or did he die by hanging i don't think that's hard to reconcile either judas went to this field he hung himself and in the course of time under the heat of the palestinian sun changes took place in his body he fell headlong and his body exploded in the field i don't think that's hard to put together uh, lawyers look at this and they say no jury would have trouble with these two eyewitnesses and reconciling them and understanding how this story took place. So the Bible tells the truth. The real issue, though, is don't miss the warning that's in these verses in Acts chapter 1. This is the first of many people in the book of Acts that God is going to judge in a significant way. Judas' body explodes. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira both drop dead. In Acts chapter 12, Herod the king who killed Judas uh, James stands up and he starts speaking and it's so impressive that everybody says, oh, it's the voice of a God, and he drops dead worms, eat his body from the inside out. <laughs> I remember the night that I heard that, it was a, in one of my pastor's Bible studies when I was a little kid. I went to church, he told us about this, I had eaten spaghetti for dinner. It was not a <laughs> pleasant, it was not a pleasant day. Don't miss the warning in this passage. Uh, see, Judas, Judas was a traitor. He betrayed the Lord. It was an act of wickedness, according to these verses. It was a special case of treachery. But you know that the Bible actually uses treachery and, and, and traitor language to describe all of us? We who live in God's world but want to pretend that He doesn't exist? We who naturally born into this world that God made and we, when God's intention was that we would live with him in obedience and with joy and that we follow him faithfully. We all have turned against him and gone our own way. We take the good things that he gives us. We use them for our own ends and abuse them for our own ends and we, we neither thank him nor acknowledge that they've come from him or are concerned at all that they are things that he has made and he has given We are all traitors, and we are all deserving of God's wrath, like this man in this story. That's why you need the Bible. That's why you need the Bible's trustworthy message, because we naturally are under this sentence. Don't miss the warning in Acts chapter 1. Now, let me finish here with the third reason why the scriptures are sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient because they are centered on Christ. Because they're centered on Christ. Why did Peter, in verse 20 here, why did he quote two psalms? It's very strange. Peter quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. The reason he quotes them is because they're messianic psalms. Messianic Psalms. 1,000 years before Christ was born, David wrote these Psalms about his own experience. He used vivid language. He used wonderful word pictures. And in the providence of God, they are divinely parallel with the life and experience of the Lord Jesus. They're Messianic Psalms. Uh, we had a friend in, in Perry, New York. Uh, he was a veterinarian. One day I was over at his house visiting with him and uh, I saw his dog and his wife said to me, don't pet the dog, the dog has fleas. I'm like the cobbler's children. My husband is a vet and my dog has fleas. Cobbler's children, what was she talking about? Some of you know, you recognize the, uh, the proverb about the, cobblers, the cobbler, the shoemaker. He was so busy making shoes for other people that he had no time to make shoes for his own children. So the cobbler's children who have no shoes... She said, "I'm like the cobbler's child. I, I have a husband who's a vet, but my dog has fleas." There's a parallel she was drawing between her life and this proverb. Well, all the way through the Gospels, Jesus himself draws parallels between his experience and the life of Jesus, uh, the life of David. It, they're divinely placed parallels. They're prophetic parallels, and they're contained in these psalms called Messianic psalms. Jesus quoted these to talk about himself. Listen to Psalm 69 and how it describes uh, David and Jesus. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. How would that be true of the Lord Jesus? Can you imagine this? Jesus is the half-brother in the home. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Do you recognize those lines? When Jesus cast the, the, the money changers out of the temple, what does the text say about him, the Bible, the gospel say about him? Zeal for your house has consumed me. Later in Psalm 69 it says, They have given me gall and vinegar to drink. Or that sound familiar. Uh, in Psalm 109, uh, it talks about Jesus being betrayed. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I'm a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Peter was reading the Bible. He was reading Psalm 69. He was reading Psalm 109. And he recognized Jesus. And recognizing Jesus and his betrayer, Peter knew what these early followers of Jesus needed to do. They had to replace Judas. The scriptures are about Christ. We could talk about the Bible in a lot of ways. We could talk about the Bible's reliability. We could talk about the Bible's authority. We could talk about the source, the sources of the, of the Bible. We could talk about the Bible's insight. But here, let me tell you and remind you about the subject of the Bible, the Lord Jesus. This is the first. This is the account of the eyewitnesses. Of the Lord Jesus, and it itself is the first and greatest witness to the supremacy and excellence of Jesus Christ. This book is sufficient because of its subject; it's about Him. You have a pile of books somewhere in your house. I have a few of them. Pile of books. Uh, It's my to-read pile. Um, I have a book. uh, I have a few books in my to-read pile that have been there for four or five years. You pick them up and you dust them and you put them back because I'm going to someday read this wonderful book. Actually, maybe you don't have a to-read pile. Maybe you have in your mind or written down even somewhere a to-watch list, movies that you want to watch. I have one of those too. In my to-read pile, there are... I borrowed these from the library. I'm never going to get to them. There's a biography of John Quincy Adams. There's a biography of Matthew Brady. There's a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. into my my to-watch list... I want to see 42, that movie about Jackie Robinson that came out a few years ago. There's, there's people in my list, compelling people that I want to read about and I want to know about, I want to learn more about them. Uh, maybe, in, in your to-read pile is not necessarily compelling people, but people who can write about their own experiences in a compelling way, memoirists. I have, I have a, a, people like that on my shelves. Garrison Keillor does this, doesn't he? He talks about normal people in just fascinating ways. This is a book about a compelling person written in a very compelling way. One of the reasons that he's compelling is because he's the savior. He is the one who has come to address and rescue you from your condition as a traitor. And the Bible demands that you put your trust in Him and the work that He did. He's the one who, for our sake, bore God's wrath on the cross, suffering for us, suffering for the sins that we had committed. He died and He rose again and He ascended into heaven. And you must, you must trust Him. The scriptures, he said, testify about me, and they call you to believe. They call you to turn to him and rely on him as the answer for your treacherous condition. The scriptures are sufficient for us. That is why in the midst of this vastly changing cultural sexual landscape, we cannot, we can't, we cannot change what we believe the Bible teaches about sexuality. We believe that the Bible is sufficient. That's why we do what we do when we gather together. We don't have cars or TVs to give away. (laughs) You get a little bag with some candy in it. Woohoo! We do the best we can to point people through the Bible to Jesus. We want to point to him as much as the Bible points to him. And we want you to follow him because he is the most compelling person in the world, not because of what might be behind curtain number two. At every point, in every way, what the Scripture says for us is enough. Let's pray, shall we? Father, you have given us this, your word, and we confess to you again our uh, our confidence in it. It's sufficient for us. Uh, we confess, Father, at times that we we struggle. We struggle to understand it. We struggle to be captivated by it as we should. Um, we we are um, blind and grateful for the the knowledge of the Lord Jesus that you have given us. Greg Greg prayed earlier. We we want to see Jesus. We want to see him by faith. We must see him by faith so that we can. Uh, be empowered to turn from our sin and to trust you for the next step when we're uncertain and to uh, love you even in the midst of, of broken situations and to, to have confidence in you even above our deeply held beliefs about ourselves. You are faithful to us. Um, you have given us your good word, you who are our good shepherd. Help us to trust in it. Make us people more and more of the book who look in this book to find fuel and inspiration and guidance for the mission that you have called us to, telling people about the Lord Jesus. Do that for us. We understand it here in Acts 1. We ask that you would make it so in our lives. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together in closing. We'll sing I Love the Church. Please stand now.